morning, friends. It's good to see you, gang. And uh, not only you guys, but it's also good to have people joining us online. And today we begin a new series through the book of James, and uh, we're going to discover a faith that is working. And uh, we are going to be several weeks away from a passage in Scripture about uh, our good works. Uh, but nonetheless, we're beginning the book of James today. So if you have your Bible, you can join with me in James chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, certainly you can pull it up on your iPhone or uh, other maybe app on your phone. And if you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to bless you with one. Uh, we would love to make sure you have uh, a Bible where you can read it and mark it up and learn from God's Word uh, every day. And so we would love to bless you with that. Hey, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive straight in uh, to James chapter 1. Heavenly Father, may you bless your Word. And Lord, as you remind us in your Scripture um, that, Lord, that your word goes forth and it will not return void. And so, Lord, in spite of the fallible man who delivers this passage, Lord, we know that your spirit is at work and can be at work. And so, Father, we ask humbly that you would take your word and, Lord, that you would set it into our hearts and that it would fall in a place of fertile soil. Lord, I pray that uh, the word is not snatched up or it doesn't land on a rocky place. But Lord, I pray that it would, it would land in a place today on our hearts and in our minds to where it'll bear much fruit. Where we're not merely hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves. But Lord, I pray that practically it would land in a place where we could apply what it says. We praise you and thank you that you are not distant and mysterious Though we can't understand all that there is about you, you clearly give us enough to understand who you are and what your purposes are. And today I pray that your word would reveal much more about you and also about our need for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. James chapter one. Uh, if you don't know where James is, it's tucked towards the very end of your Bible. And uh, in James chapter one, it begins in verse one with this phrase, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why this is interesting is because you need to know who James is. James was called James the Just. Everybody say James the Just. There are multiple James through the New Testament. Um, uh, there is James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, there are other James that could easily have been confused as writing this book. But the challenge with all those other Jameses is that they don't line up in the timeline. Like even the, even the, the apostle James is already dead by the time this book, which by the way is the earliest New Testament book, by the time this is written, somewhere between 44 to 50 AD, um, just literally 10 to 15 years after the crucifixion of Christ, here it is, this New Testament book, this letter from James is circulating. And now the reason that James the Just is important is because he wasn't an apostle. Uh, he wasn't a disciple of, of sorts. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, his mother was the same mother as our Lord. 
And why it's also important is because if you look through the Apostle John, what you would note uh, early in uh, John's writings is that James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, apparently had some questions about his brother, whether or not he was the Messiah, and certainly did not widely accept that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. Now, why that's important is because as we were talking about Easter a couple of weeks ago in the resurrection, it's not until after the resurrection that James the just becomes what it seems to be a believer in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a passage that we oftentimes quote where we talk about if, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is futile, uh, our Belief is in vain. Our gathering is in vain. We're the most to be pitied. We'll never see our loved ones again. In that same passage, it is there that Paul writes and tells us that Jesus appeared to Cephas, which was Peter, uh, that he appeared to over 500 witnesses, and then he also goes to, guess who? James the Just. Now tell me this, why do you think that Jesus, the resurrected Lord, goes to his half-brother? to convince him, to convince him of what? Of who he is, of his deity, of the fact that you knew I was dead. You knew that mom mourned. His mother was there on scene of the crucifixion, the barbaric act at the hands of the Roman government. Surely if James, who was not a believer earlier on, is now a believer and becomes the pastor in Jerusalem, it had to have happened when? After the resurrection. Like that's an Easter message in and of itself. And so when you think about this guy, James, you need to know that he is the half-brother of Jesus. But what's interesting about the start of his, his letter is when he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the word in the Greek, doulos, which simply is better translated, not servant, but likely slave. Now, why is that important? Because the half-brother of Jesus, who was around Jesus over, obviously a younger brother, grew up around him, had some disbelief in him, now gets to the place where not only he's seen the resurrected Christ, but he doesn't even say James, the half-brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as James, the servant and the slave of Jesus. And that's how he begins this, 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 this idea, this book. Now, What's interesting about James too is he does become the pastor in Jerusalem. We, we see that through um, Acts and it's noted multiple times, his influence in Jerusalem, which is a very strong church and uh, certainly a church that has influence across the region. But it's also noted that uh, Paul writes to the church of Galatians, Galatians 2.9, and he would say that James was one of the pillars of the church. And he identifies James as a pillar of the church with other two, two other men, Peter and John. And so James is a very influential guy, and many would say he had such great devotion and was such a slave to his Lord, Jesus, that his knees were calloused and literally looked like cantaloupe or a camel's back because he was so devoted to prayer in the early church. And so James the just is a man who had rocky beginnings, like many of us, 
who had an encounter with Jesus and then his life was changed. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. That no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how much you've doubted or had disbelief, that there's a God in heaven who's pursuing you, who loves you, who desires to have a relationship with you. And not only is that true, but he would desire that you would come into fellowship with him. That you, like James the Just, would stop running and that he would appear to you and he would make himself known to you. And as he does that, that you would surrender your life and that you would proclaim to the Lord of heaven and earth, I am your bondservant and you are my master. That's what God wants for every single one of us. And then you look at the latter part of verse one, who is James writing to? He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. And then he uses this Jewish greeting, which is literally greetings. Um, he, he is writing to a group of people who are being dispersed, likely from Herod Agrippa I. Um, Herod Agrippa is the, is the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who killed all the infants two years and under during Jesus' time. Herod Agrippa I is not to be confused with the other Agrippa that we see in the scripture, which is his son. Now, the reason this is important, because in Acts chapter 12, we see that Herod Agrippa um, is bringing a lot of chaos and confusion within the church and killing people. In Acts chapter 12, we're not going to read it, but you can go there and see it. But Herod the king has laid violent hands on multiple people, uh, killed James, the brother of John, and now he's dead. And so it's also um, him who has arrested Peter and has created a lot of chaos. So because of that, it is likely that the dating of this book that James is writing happens after 44 AD because that's when Herod Agrippa I dies. But we know he's causing a lot of turmoil. And it's because of the turmoil, he clearly writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What do you do when people are trying to kill you? You're like, I don't know. I'll, let me tell you what you will do. You'll run. You're going to run. Now, there's a couple of you bold Texans like, no, baby, I ain't running. I'm going to just pull out my gun right here, and we're going to have a shoot-off. Okay, look, most of us are going to run, okay? So we are thankful for you that are going to stand. I'm running, okay? Um, you're like, man, he's a coward. He's a coward. This is what people were doing. They were running. And he writes to them to encourage their hearts. And look what he says next in verse 2. He says, in the midst of your running, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your trials, he says, count it all joy, oh my, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, what's interesting is, is depending on the context of your Bible, it may say meet or encounter. But the word there, meet, in the New Testament, in the early manuscripts of the Greek, it literally means peripipto, which means to encounter. So it is indeed that there are trials that come across you and you encounter them. And as you encounter these trials, they are of various kinds. Uh, matter of fact, this idea of trials is the word parismos, which could mean a variety of things. It could mean that, hey, I have endured a trial or it's a temptation or a circumstance or it could be a persecution. And then it really goes from there a multitude of angles, right? You can have circumstances that are unrelated to you um, that you are working through because of something that's happening not necessarily to you, but to someone you love. 
Certainly you can have trials that are you're enduring, that you didn't necessarily bring about yourself, but that you are working through. And that could certainly be a cancer diagnosis, or it could be um, a, a down back. It could be a variety of things, but go beyond that. It doesn't just stop there. It could be things that are done to you, sin-related, or even things that you've caused as a result of your sin. So this word is very broad. And not only is it very broad, it, it basically says you're going to have a parismos of many kinds. So when he says of various kinds, it means that they come in different shapes and forms. Certainly, if you have been tracking with us in uh, the book of Job here at Stone Point, you know that Job endured trials of a variety of kind. And not only did he endure affliction um, from the hands of the adversary with permission from God, uh, certainly there were external measures, but there was also internal strife. Internal strife because he's questioning in some ways the goodness of God as it relates to him, but then he's got three friends who initially start listening and then those three friends have a lot to say to Job. So if you can imagine all the trials that this guy is enduring, that's what it looks like. That's what he is saying. But what's interesting is, is that it's the idea of some ways as you encounter these trials as if it's almost a trap or a snare. It's, it's something that could easily entangle you or knock you off course. It's in some ways kind of what King David wrote in Psalm chapter 116, verses three and following. He says this, the snares of death encompassed me. That's the idea, that you're surrounded in some ways, you're encountering all these trials. He says, the pangs of Sheol, they laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord. I pray deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord uh, preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. So all of these variety of trials are there to help a believer endure. And in many ways, it's to, in some ways, also consider it what? Joy. That you would not be moved or that you would not be tripped and that even though you're surrounded, you're not ensnared. Why? Because the Lord is with us and he is merciful and he is gracious to those who call upon his name. And friends, that's the only way you continue to maintain joy in the midst of a variety of trials is when you call upon the name of the Lord our God. Can I get an amen? Are y'all with me? Hey, listen, it's okay to interact. Like if we're gonna be stiff and dead, like let's just go home. I'm being serious. Like, let's go home. Church, it's time to wake up. I don't know if y'all know that. But we're living in a day and age right now where I'm tired of watching Christians slumber. Why are we slumbering when we're together? My goodness, we ought to be awake. We ought to be vigilant. Isn't that what Peter wrote? Be of sober mind. Be alert. I am tired of gathering with bored adults. Praise God. That reminds me of Chippy the parakeet. <laughs> you might wonder about, oh, Chippy. Okay, let me tell you about Chippy real quick. Chippy 
was a parakeet and he has an owner and the owner thought, you know what, it's a good day to clean out the cage. And so she grabs her vacuum cleaner. And so she is vacuuming inside of his little parakeet cage and all of a sudden she gets a phone call, happens to leave the vacuum cleaner on while she goes and talks to her friend. All of a sudden, Chippy is now inside the vacuum cleaner. And so she panics, puts the phone down, goes and gets Chippy. Chippy is obviously covered in smut and dust. And so she brushes him off. He is certainly shocked, but she thinks, well, you know what? Maybe I should wash Chippy off. That would be a good idea. Birds need baths because they have bird baths. And so she takes Chippy and she runs him through the water. And as she runs him through the water, she looks at him. And though he is obviously confused and dazed, she thinks, well, of course, if he's been through the water, he's got to be blown dry. And so she grabs out her blow dryer and blows oh Chippy uh, dry. Now, if you were Chippy, you would think, I have just endured trials of a variety of kinds in which people ask about Chippy now, and he refuses to sing. In which the owner says, listen, if you have been sucked up, if you've been washed over, and you've been blown over as well, it would be hard for you to sing, right? Because it's hard for people to sing, even if they have the stoutest of a heart. Oh, Chippy went through a lot. Friends, that's what the church is going through. Why in the world would we not sing? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, encounter trials of a variety of kinds. That's why we sing. Verse 3 tells you, because it's in the testing, dokimion, of your faith that produces steadfastness. It's the testing. The testing is in some ways like the star test. It's the dreaded proverbial test at the end of the year. Teachers hate it. Students hate it. Everybody but the state hates it. That accurate? Amen. That's where we finally get amen. <laughs> Lord, forgive us. But it's in the testing that you are proving what? And I get it. You could, you could make some arguments that a test doesn't necessarily prove anything, that there are people who don't hold up to the test very well. But listen, that does not count as a standard when James writes this. And I would just say, in our faithfulness to God, we, we can't use that as an excuse. We can't say, you know what, my son's dyslexic, which actually happens to be true. When it comes to our faith, we don't get to cop out on this one. It is the variety of trials that brings about a testing, and, and the testing is literally the proof of your faith. And that proof of your faith is what brings about the idea of steadfastness. Now, if you know what steadfastness is in here, it, the word in the Greek, hupomone, which means an act of endurance. It means to patiently wait. It's the idea to patiently endure. Now, we like to wait with our hands in our lap, but that's not the active tense of this word. The idea is as trials go on in a variety of kinds, we actively wait. We push on, we preserve, we we persevere with joy. We encounter things. We're not ensnared. We're not trapped. We're not sucked in. We're not blown over. We are standing on the promises of God. This same idea of testing is what Peter writes about when he says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Exact same word. I'll show it to you. In verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Sound familiar? You know who he's writing to? 
People were in the dispersion, hiding in caves and catacombs, running for their lives, a similar group. He says, though you've faced trials and been greed by them so that you are tested. That's the same word in the Greek, dokimion. The tested genuineness of your faith, which then he says is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may it be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes at the end, when you are burned up in trials, may your life not be straw and hay and wood, but may it be of value, may it be of a precious commodity, may it be of gold, though it's heated up, it's just refined more. That's the idea that James is writing about and the same idea that here Peter was writing about. Go back to James chapter one, verse four. James goes on, he says, and let this steadfastness, hupomone, same word, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Now this is where it gets a little interesting. And the reason it gets a little interesting is because he uses the word in the Greek, holokaleros, which literally means to be without blemish, without defect, without sin, without fault, without any impurities. Basically, he says the goal of this is that you would make perfect. And then he goes on, he just adds this phrase just so you and I can't balk too much. He goes, lacking in nothing. So his point is that a believer, particularly in the early church as Herod Agrippa and then his son, Herod Agrippa II, began to ravage the church as they appoint new high priests who are also staunch in their beliefs and are who trying to stamp out the gospel, the members of those who are of the way, Peter and James here write to this group of people and say, don't be moved. Why? Because all of this, is, if it's having its full effect on you, it's bringing about perfection and completion in you. It would do us good as I read through the New Testament to face a little persecution in the American church. It would certainly refine us it would certainly bring about those who are genuine in their faith and those who are seeking for a prosperous word from the Lord. And that is the idea that James says, there is a difference between those who are persevering and pursuing. And friends, here we desire that every single person, one of you would become fully devoted followers of Christ that you would indeed be persevering, that you would indeed would be maturing, that you would indeed become more conformed to the image of Christ where you don't see yourself, but you see Christ in you. And you might look in the mirror and say, oh Lord, I have a long way to go. But what James indicates is, is that the Lord has a plan to expedite the process. And he'll expedite it, unfortunately, through a variety of encounters. Encounters in life that are difficult. He intends that you, like O Chippy, would be sucked in, that you would be washed up, and that you would be blown over. But what you do next matters. 
Matter of fact, Paul uses the same language as James does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. This idea of holokaleros, the idea of complete and lacking in nothing, the same word is used right here. Here it is. Now may the God of peace, verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians 5, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, what's the word? Completely. There it is. A local eros, that you would be completely without blemish, without default, in every way God would make you like him. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Paul adds on to that. He doesn't just say, hey, may your whole life, but he goes, your spirit, your, your soul, your body, everything you do, may it be kept blameless until the appearing of Christ. Now, that may be, challenging news or for some of us it's good news and here's the good news the good news is is that there's nothing wasted in your life there's no hardship trial encounter that God's not using to bring about his purposes which is unfortunate because we would prefer not to have any of those things and I understand that like in my flesh I don't want to endure some of the things that my friends in this room are enduring And certainly there's a lot of things that you and I are enduring that you wouldn't wish on anybody. But the reality is, is we can see through a different lens that God is using even those things, those hardships, those trials, those circumstances, those temptations, those stumbles along the way to bring about his purposes that you would lack nothing. That, friends, helps. And so I just want you to do me a favor and realize this. In adversity, I'm gonna put a quote for you up in here. In adversity, we usually want God to do a removing job when he wants to do an improving job. To realize the work of the anchor, we have to feel the storm. Like if you know that you're unmoved, you gotta have some wind and some pressure. You gotta be squeezed a bit. That's why he goes on and he says this in verse five, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So the idea is, is that surely trials are enough to send a man to God saying, Lord, I need wisdom. That's the context. Now we can take this verse and snatch it out and commonly do. And I don't think it's wrong to say if anyone asks for God for wisdom, he'd love to give it. That's true. But specifically in the context of this passage, what James is saying, when you are like old Chippy and you have been washed over and blown over, surely that's the time for you to look to the heavens and say, Lord, I need help and I need wisdom and I need strength and I need your spirit to lead me. That's the idea. But he says this, when you ask, look at verse six, make sure you ask in faith with no doubting, which is my challenge oftentimes, right? A heart of disbelief. But he says this, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he will receive any from the Lord if he is double-minded. Because if he's a double-minded man, he's unstable in all his ways. So the key to this, look at this, when you ask God for wisdom, certainly you do it by faith. And you might wonder, well, how do I know if it's by faith? Well, it's whether or not you're easily blown over. Because the idea, the analogy here is there's a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. And so certainly what makes an unstable person is when the waves come and the winds blow, he's toppled over. Seems like Jesus talked about something like that in Matthew chapter seven. Y'all remember that? He goes, there's a wise builder. I'll let you go read it. I don't have time to explain it. There's a wise builder and he builds upon something that is strong, 
there's a foolish builder, well, you'll be blown over. Now, what's interesting about this is that you look at the wave and you, you ask the question, what is it driven by? Look at verse six, it's driven by the what? The wind. Likewise, a foolish man is driven by the winds, which means he's tossed back and forth. Seems like Paul wrote about something about that in Ephesians chapter four, not being tossed and driven by the winds. Go on though, and here's the deal. A person who's tossed by the wind, James says clearly in verse eight that he is unstable. Why are you unstable? Because if you're always picking up what the winds are doing, if it's blowing from the north, you're heading in a different direction. If it comes from the south, you change course. Oh, the, today it's from the east. Oh, well, I'm going to be different today. Do you see that? you think that ever happens in our day and time? So when that happens, you clearly know that's not a person living by faith. So James gives us a very clear warning. If a fickle man is blown away by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4, Paul writes, then you're prone to be foolish, unstable is what he says. But even more than that, do you know what's important? Look at verse seven, an unstable man never finds rest. There's no rest for the unstable man. There's no rest for the fickle. There's no rest for the person who's always changing directions. So the friends, where is rest? In the midst of trials, in the midst of the world we live in, in the midst of wars and rumors of wars and famines and evil and all these things, where is rest found? James is trying to point you to, the, to his brother. Rest is found in Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter four. It's a great passage about where true rest is found. You can make note of that. And here's the deal. When you have unstable people tossed by the winds, the clear calamity that comes from that is an unstable man who brings about disparity and challenges. And we live in a culture right now where there's tons of unstable people and because of their instability, they're doing foolish things. And so what do we do in the midst of that? He says, verse nine, so let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and look the rich in his humiliation because the, like a flower of grass, he'll pass away for the sun rises with scorching heat and it withers the grass, flower falls and his beauty perishes. So also with a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What is he saying here? He goes, listen, life is short. It's it's fleeting. You're going to have trials. You're going to encounter it in various kinds. But what there's hope for the poor man, and there's also hope for the rich man. Why is there hope for the poor man? Because you don't have to have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Why is there hope for the rich man? Because one day you're going to find your hope not in glorious riches, but in the one who is gloriously rich. And then it makes us equal, right? Because the poor man tries to come to Christ, comes to Christ and also the rich man denounces things and he comes to Christ. And so there we find hope in the same place, whether you are rich or poor. You find hope in who? Christ. Not the waves, not the winds, not the unrest, but you find rich, richness in your soul. So therefore, blessed is the man who finds these things. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So friends, are you going to receive the crown of life? And if you are, then the question is, is what does that even look like? Well, it's mentioned a handful of different times. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to close together because I think you and I have got the point of this message. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter says this way, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown 
of glory. So when is it that Christ appears? It's when Christ appears that you are crowned with glory. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a passage where he talks about that um, he has fought the good fight, he has kept the faith, he has finished the course, he has run the race. But he says this in verse 8, and in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me. Here's the hope. Underline that. Not only to me, but also those who have what? Loved his appearing. So there's a crown for not only Paul and Peter, but there is a crown for us, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes this way to the church of Corinth. And he's talking about for the saints who are running well, who are staying on track, who don't give up in their, their mission, in their pursuit, who stay the course. He says this, verse 24 and following, 1 Corinthians 9, hey, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And what's important there is that word wreath is the same word, stephanos, that you would see anytime you see the word crown. And it is a, a wreath, literally, that, that was awarded to people. He goes, and in our lives, we receive one who's not merely a token of our appreciation or a token of what we've done. It's not merely a ribbon that we hang in our room, but he goes, it's one that we hang over our hearts and it endures with us forever. Why? Because it's imperishable. So that's why Paul says this in verse 26. So I don't run aimlessly and I don't box one as beating in the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to myself, I myself should be disqualified. Now, why do we run straight why do we pick a focal point and make sure we stay in our lane, enduring and running as straight as possible? Why do we do that? So we're not tossed. And we don't change directions by the course of the air. We set our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, like Jesus' brother, are going to encounter trials of a variety of kinds. And we have a choice. We can be like O'Chippy, who doesn't sing with joy in our hearts. Or we can be different. Though you have been sucked up, washed up, and blown over, you can run your race well. And I pray we would run our race well. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for the glorious hope that we've encountered as we've read your word. Lord, would you help us to honor you and love you and be shaped by you? Lord, would you help us have an anchor for our soul. Lord, may we not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine in a world that is, is looking for hope and trying to find purpose and peace in the wrong place. The problem is, is that their Confucianism isn't bringing them peace and they, they aren't able to find nirvana and they're not able to find uh, a God because there are not gods other than you. They are false gods, so they don't respond and they don't listen and, and they, they can't do anything to bring about hope. But you are the one true God and not only do you hear us, you respond to us when we ask for wisdom and you are what sets our soul on on purpose. And it is you, Lord, that helps us to endure. And it is you, Lord, who is our strength and our shield and you are our song. Lord, it is you who we need. It is you who desires that we become perfect and blameless and, and complete. 
And it seems that we gather in this place and so many of us are okay with being immature and okay with being fickle and okay with being tossed to and fro and we're just okay with believing in a God like the demons do or like the Muslims do. But there is one true God and when we encounter you, Lord, you change our hearts and you change our lives and because we repent and we go a different direction, we're not easily a fickle people. We're not easily disturbed. And when our president does something, it doesn't ruin our day because he's not in charge. And when there's wars that are happening, Lord, we're, we're not easily disturbed. When gas prices go up, we're not alarmed and we don't complain because you, God, are not surprised. And everything that happens around us, Lord, is an obstacle to encounter and the response we have to it reveals our heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would grow our hearts to a measure of faith to where we could say to others, come and follow me as I follow Christ. Oh Lord, we need your help. And I love my friends here. And I pray that they're encouraged by your word. And Lord, I pray that my friends in this room desire more for their families and for their marriages. And as friends in this very room are joining us right now online because they can't attend in person, that are hurting, Lord, I pray that you would meet them with your spirit, that you would bring peace in the midst of obstacles. And in their journey, they wouldn't waver, but continually point others towards you. Obstacles have a great way of not only refining us, but bringing hope to people who are fickle. And so Lord, help us to be like a man who builds his house well. In Jesus' name.